The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. All Christians are about making Jesus known in the world, about commending Jesus and his offer of forgiveness, life, to everyone all around us. We've been seeing this all throughout the end of chap- chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians and through chapter 3. We've called it gospel-centered ministry, new covenant ministry, all just different ways of describing the same thing. It's what Paul was about. It's what all of us are to be about. And probably most Christians, if not before this, because of this, we're all probably sort of aware of this. And I think actually that most who are not Christians also are sort of aware of this about Christians. We're all kind of aware of what the the call, what the mandate on the Christian life is to be a witness, to be talking about Jesus, to be kind of offering him to the world around. And I think then... Ironically, one thing that we all have in common, those who are Christians and those who are not, is we're all kind of sometimes a little bit uneasy, a little bit uneasy about that Christian approach to life. Christians, we're we're a bit uneasy about it because, well, it, it can be a little bit difficult. It can be hard, challenging. It creates some awkward situations. It creates a lot of guilt if we feel like we're doing it poorly or not doing it well enough. And those who aren't Christians, sometimes they're a little bit uneasy about this because who hasn't met a Christian who in the process of witnessing has been just a little bit too pushy or manipulative? Sometimes Christians can be a little mean-spirited even or holier-than-thou or judgmental. The kind of behaviors that kind of leave some people feeling like it seems like you are being a little less than honest and a little less than loving and a little more coercive in trying to like get me into your agenda. No thanks. That, that attitude is out there, certainly. And if we look at that attitude in the non-Christian world and in the Christian world, this general uneasiness with the task, we're all kind of a little just uncertain. This outward-looking approach to life leaves us uncomfortable. Which is the spot I think this passage steps into and can be of great help to us then because of how it frames this call to witness. It's going to, to, to reject, to cast aside what nobody likes and then it, it sets, sets then our witnessing in a framework. It's, it sets it on a path that says this is actually something that we all can be and should be happy with. It presents the the ministry of witnessing as something that is done with integrity and honesty, that commends Jesus to people in a way that is is above board and clear, just puts puts the message out there and then leaves all results to God, not, not human manipulation or coercion. The attitude of, here, here's, here's a message that 
I think for all these reasons is true, relevant, important. I think it's filled with hope. It's centered on a person, Jesus, who I think is beautiful. And if it's true, it is really important. But ultimately, your response is up to you. And I'm not, I'm not going like, to try to like put a hook into you and make you in some way. Here, it's up to you. That, that's the kind of attitude that would flow from what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. Clearly, certainly, we are to commend Jesus, but we are to do it in a way that, that kind of takes a step back and says, the results, though, are not up to me. They're not, they're not in my hands. So I can be free with it in a way that's pleasing to everyone, I think. So that's what we're going to see here, a new covenant gospel ministry that shines forth the light of the gospel in a way that's clear, which depends on God, not on me. So headed towards that this morning, let me read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read them, and then I'll draw two observations from them. Beginning verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Though we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. The two observations, here's the first. The Christian minister is called to shine a specific light in a specific manner. The Christian minister is called to shine a specific light in a specific manner. Verse 1 begins with a reference to this ministry, which is all that we've been seeing before up, up in the previous verses. It's the, the call, the, the assignment to be the aroma of Christ wherever we're walking. That's in chapter 2. It's called the, the ministry of the Spirit in chapter 3, verse 6. The ministry of righteousness in, in 8 and 9. Christ's ministry here was, was particularly assigned to Paul. And as we've said, it also falls down to all of us who are, who are followers of him. According to our different circumstances and gifts, yes. But, but all of us have this ministry. And we have it by the mercy of God. He says. Now, several things are going to follow from this because it you know, ends, therefore, so we're going to see some things that are going to be our focus, but we have to first kind of, kind of hold here in the beginning part of verse 1 and say, what's the, what's the groundwork here? Having this ministry 
by the mercy of God. Paul's focus is not on this ministry as an assignment. He sees it as a privilege. We have to start here with this. This is Paul more focused on on mercy than on job. Paul's life and and every one of our lives, as you're a Christian, we, we all are objects of mercy. We are a We are people, if you think of yourself like a sponge, we are a people who have soaked up so much mercy. If you pick up the sponge, the water just runs out of it. We are objects of God's mercy. Perhaps not quite quite as clear to us as it would have been to Paul, who in his early life was a a significant persecutor of Christians, but all of us should, should recognize that I have no right whatsoever to be anything but condemned. But I'm not that. Instead, I I stand here as actually a spokesperson for this Jesus. Like, I I stand before Jesus not as as an object of wrath, but as an object of mercy from him. That is a, that's a complete 180. As an object of mercy, everything that I have in my life, including this ministry, everything is a privilege. But then it also means this. Take this one more turn, and I think this is actually pretty important for me. See if it is for you. The, The fact that you've been given this ministry as a mercy, mercy, means that you and I, we don't have to make any particular outcome happen in order to justify myself, yourself, and to prove ourselves worthy. Which is often, if you think about this, what drives all kinds of ugly interpersonal interactions between people or between groups. I have a position, I've got something that I'm about, and I think I need an outcome. If I don't get that outcome, in some, in some sense, I'm going to be at loss. And so I need an outcome, and I'm going to drive that or somehow work to get it. If, if I have this purely as mercy, everything that I have is a gift, and I don't need to get anything more so as to prove myself worthy. I, I'm not going to find myself ever in some spot where I failed to meet my quota, and I look like a fool, and Jesus frowns at me. It's a privilege. I got all this by mercy. Would you sit in that, please? Your life and everything that's going to follow after this. Obviously, this is about manner of of witnessing, and it's, it's touching on the topic of evangelism. Everything that follows after this comes from I have this ministry as a task to do and I better or else. No. Everything that follows after that comes from I have been given a privilege and I stand as an object of mercy before God. It's a gift. So be free in that. You don't have to perform. 
But in fact, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul says we do not lose heart. We aren't nervous or downcast, worried, but in fact we are, to use the other, he's put it positively before, like last week, very bold, before that, confident. I I can be actually hope-filled in this ministry. I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to be confident, which looks like what? Well, kind of what everyone would want it to be. If you look at the rest of verses 1 and 2, whether you're a Christian or not, what you see here is, is kind of what you would want to be like and kind of what you want other people who interact with you to be like. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we don't practice cunning. There is no manipulation here. There is no coercion. There's no sleight of hand. There's no working the system. There's no, there's no setting the hook. There's no shaving the truth. There's no covering up. There's no spin. Amen. That's what I want to be like, and that's what I want people who talk to me to be like. This is good. We are an above-board, clear, gracious, forthright people who do not tamper with God's word. We don't avoid the hard parts. We don't front the parts that we think people will like or the parts that we like. We don't, we don't bait and switch, give all kinds of good things in, in actually a disproportionate way, and then later you'll find out the bad stuff. No, it's just, here it is. Here it is. We don't tamper with God's word. We present it clearly and forthrightly without deception and cunning and no ploys. We're going to state the Bible clearly. Which, to be clear, does not mean that we have to be preachy when we're talking to somebody. Or that we have to always present everything all the time and kind of like hold their attention and talk real fast so we can get everything out. We are aware of social cues. That's part of not practicing ploys and and dealing in cunning. We are aware of social cues. We are sensitive to people. We We are aware of how human interaction works. It just means that we don't dodge the truth. We don't shave it off. We're gracious. We converse well. And we do it in a way that commends ourselves in everything to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, the end of verse 2. The conscience is the part of a person. It is not fail-safe, but it is generally reliable. It can be hardened and corrupted for sure, but there's something in people that is kind of like a a truth tester. And we want to be able to put ourselves in front of people so that something in them will say, That's a good guy. That's a woman full of integrity. And even if they slander us out loud, something in them will say, dude, what? that's a nice guy. What are you saying? Their conscience will accuse them if they accuse us. We are thoughtful about that. We're, We're trying for that. Paul says right there explicitly, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Ultimately, we want to please God. We know we are before God, but but what he's saying is that it's possible. We're actually trying. It's possible to do both. 
to be pleasing to God and to be pleasing to people in an upright, forthright, clear, non-cunning way. Amen. I read this and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. Those are the kind of people I want to be around. And Paul says, that's what we are in this ministry. All of that's our manner. Or at least it's supposed to be. Is it your manner? And is it your manner not just when you are overtly, clearly talking about Jesus, but is it your manner when you are perhaps unconsciously witnessing about Jesus? Because you realize that, that once you're known as a Christian, everything you're doing is witnessing for Jesus. So once you're known as a Christian, and then the next conversation gets really ugly, opinionated, and angry about pick the current issue. It would have some sort of a, uh, with this passage. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm just talking about politics. Yeah, you're talking about politics as a Christian. People are assigning Jesus to that view. Is it in you something that commends yourself to that person's conscience as good, upright, desirable, or not? What's your attitude like? What's your demeanor like with people, your manner? We want to say, I am about being above board, no disgraceful means, no underhanded means, no manipulation, I'm commending myself to your conscience, but I'm doing that for a reason. I have a, I have a task here. I'm, I'm commending myself in a specific manner, but I'm doing something specifically also. We're, we're to shine a specific light. A very specific light. If you look at the flow of the passage, the next couple verses get into the topic of spiritual blindness, which we'll come to. But what we are to be shining and what others don't see is called in verse 2, God's word or the truth. In verse 3, it's our gospel. And all that builds until in verse 4, it's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Or even longer, verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's really wordy. Lots of words there. You could say it very simply. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's in there too. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. We Christian ministers are trying to communicate in a verse one and two manner something very specific, the gospel. In our words, in our actions for sure, in our manner for sure, but particularly in our words, we have to explain the message of the gospel. That's at the heart of the new covenant how Christ came and went to the cross to die under God's curse, to atone for the sin of everyone who will trust him. Turn it around. 
We are proclaiming, we are saying, if you trust him, God promises forgiveness. If you don't trust him, no forgiveness. But if you do trust him, for sure. That, that's, that's at the core of it. That's, that's the heart of this, this message we are proclaiming. For the love of people who need what it's about, forgiveness at the cross because of Jesus, who is God, who came in flesh to the earth. He is the fullness of the image of God, the exact representation of his being. It's at the end of verse 4. He came to earth as a man and humbly died to offer a substitute in our place, a sacrifice that would pay for our sin. For this to be understood is to see glory. As it says, it's the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's to see glory. Glory because in this message, righteousness is offered. Because Christ crucified, it's glory because here is grace offered. Here is mercy extended. It's glory because in, in the message of the cross, we see the power of God and the wisdom of God that deals with our greatest, deepest human problem. Our human problem is not ultimately that life doesn't work out. Our human problem most deeply is that we are at odds with God. And gloriously, here's an effective, just, righteous, gracious, and merciful solution. Gloriously loving because it ends up with God rescuing us. And gloriously compassionate because God wanted to do this. He was not obligated or coerced himself, but chose to freely. If you see all of this, if you see all of this, this cross and this Christ crucified on the cross and this effect of the cross that is forgiveness for us, what we are seeing is God's glory in the face of Jesus as he hangs there, hangs there bloodied with tears streaking through the dirt on his face flowing out of eyes that are filled with love. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, so you know all that. But maybe as I try to paint a little image there, if you can picture the face of Jesus, if you can picture him there with the crown pressed on his head and the blood running down mixed in with the tears that are traced through the dirt that comes out of eyes that are not blazing angry but are weeping. If you can see that, then you can say, oh, I think we need to circle back on this glory thing one more time. Because what he was talking about before, he being me, what he was talking about before is the glory of these, let's call them principles. The glory of status or attributes, and they are indeed glorious. To talk about the glory of righteousness offered. That's, that's true, for sure. And we got to say, it is a glorious thing that I, a sinner, can be made righteous in the eyes of God. That's a glorious thing. But more than that, more than just looking at attributes, 
Do you realize that beneath the attributes, beneath the actions of of the cross, beneath all of that is God himself who is glorious, particularly because, picture that face, with the crown and the blood and the tears and the love. That ain't normal. That's glorious. What's normal would be either sorrow at having your life ripped away from you or majestic fury at the indignation of somebody daring to offend. The almighty and the lowly. One or the other is normal. But Jesus is both which ain't normal. But it's glorious and beautiful, awesome and stunning. You see, we can, we can look at, we can read these verses, and we, we, we are Christians, we are well familiar with, with what, it, what is the Bible, what is God's truth, what is the gospel, you know, the, the image of God in Jesus. We are familiar with all those things, and we can hold them up and say kind of, yeah, those truths are amazing, and the cross accomplishes wonderful things. But all of that is because beneath it is, is a God who is completely other and unique. I found myself this, this, this week, yesterday in fact, uh, there is an old song which I, I guess we don't sing anymore because it's not cool. Um, it was an old chorus or a hymn and I, I kind of wish we did. It kind of goes, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can fathom your infinite beauty? Who can, who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, and I stand in awe of you. Nobody stands in awe of righteousness. Nobody stands in awe of the concept of compassion. You stand in awe of a compassionate one who is righteous and forgiving, a person, a being. He's a God who is glorious. We, we look at him and we... If we're supposed to look at the cross, we're supposed to look at the gospel and not see like X plus Y carry the one results in righteousness. We're supposed to look at it and see a beautiful Savior who's too marvelous for words, wonderful beyond all comprehension, and stand in awe of him. This is the light that we're trying to shine forth, that we're trying to express, and this is why we've got to live in a certain manner that doesn't actually contradict all that. It says, I'm talking about a God who is beautiful, and I'm ugly, but this is beautiful. No, no, we've got to say a life that's consistent with it, and it's all of our fallenness, but it's consistent with it. 
And then with our words, we are going to commend and say, and here's why that's the case. Here's who he is. Here's what he has done. For me, at least, and I think for you too, if you would trust him, do you want to? We, we offer it like that because we're offering a person who has captured us. Not concepts that are right and good. A person who has captured us. The Jesus who is glorious. The God who is good. We're looking to see God's good glory in this Christ. And we most clearly see it as he hangs on the cross with the crown pressed in, the blood and the tears running down. That's what we're trying to preach. That's who we're trying to preach. That's the specific light we're trying to shine forward. Not just a doctrine or a concept, but a person, Jesus himself, and God revealed in Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what, and you can also turn this a half, half click and say, in the context, Paul also uses that language to point out the glory of God in the face of Jesus, not the glory of God in the face of Moses. Remember, he was talking about that in the previous chapter. We preach the gospel, not the law. The glory of God in the face of Jesus, not in the face of Moses, even when we are preaching from Moses, which we should and must. But we're preaching from Moses, from the law, to Jesus. That's what we're preaching. We, we need the law. We have to keep that in mind. We need the law because that's how we become aware of the problem to which Jesus is the solution and why it is so glorious that he is who he is. But the point, the goal, whether we're preaching from Moses or the law of Moses or any that were in the Old Testament or any of the commandments of the New Testament, we're preaching the whole Bible, but all of it's to Jesus because that is the message. He's the one word from God, Jesus. That's what we're preaching. That's who we're preaching. And this also, in fact, I think is a great relief for all of us Here's what it means. We aren't tasked with preaching or somehow ministering to a world that's wrapped up in sin so as to get it somehow to stop sinning. And instead, do what God says and what God commands, and so therefore things will all work out better. We're not doing that. We aren't preaching ethics and morals, and commandments, and laws, so as to reform people, or cajole them, or coerce them, or guilt them, or terrify them into living in obedience to God so that everything works out better. Nope. We're preaching the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Put it more theologically, we aren't preaching works righteousness. We preach the gospel of how Christ was crucified so that we can be forgiven. And then if you remember verse 18 from last week, that's then how people get changed. We are saved and then we continue to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and are changed and changed and changed and changed. We preach Christ in the gospel. And of course, that won't be agreed upon which takes us to the second observation. But before I go there, I, I just kind of want to say, I, I, 
What I, what I hope that we take from this first point is, first of all, it is all by mercy. And, and then secondly, what you take is that Jesus is beautiful. That's what I need to see. That's what I'm trying to shine. The glory of God in the face of Christ is not just doctrine. It's the beauty of God in Jesus, the righteous one who was crucified for us. That's what we're about. And not everybody will agree, of course. So here's the second observation. Ultimately, God is the one who makes this light shine in the human heart. Ultimately, God is the one who makes this light shine in the human heart. So we have an assignment. We openly state the truth of the gospel, genuine integrity, and we do it not as a job, but as a privilege, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience and we do it in a way that we hope people will say, our aim is that they'll say, even if they don't say it out loud, that's a pretty good guy. She's a woman of integrity. I've got to grant that. I think what she's talking about is preposterous. It's even judgmental and bigoted. Okay. People will say that, and people will think that for sure, yep. Maybe your classmate has... Has, has to agree that you know, you're not that bad of a person, but the message sure is they don't see what's good about the good news. Verse 3, and that's because it is veiled. Using a word that he used up before in chapter 3, there is a cover, a veil, that blocks their line of sight. Paul's going to acknowledge that and explain it where it comes from. And what the result is, he's saying that if it's veiled, and it is, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. Now, he's mentioned this group before, up in chapter 2, in a very sobering place. We talked about this before. We talk about those who are perishing, and it is important to realize that we are not playing a game here in the world. There are two groups of people, and only two groups of people. There are those who are being saved and those who are perishing. There is no middle third ground. You can move from one group to the other, but there's no middle third ground. There are way, way, way too many people right now. I, I know you understand this, but I find it sometimes helpful to stop and look at real live people out in the world in the grocery store line and to think there are way, 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 way too many people in this building right now, in this grocery store, in, in this parking lot who do not believe the gospel and in their sin are perishing. Not in a neutral spot. Perishing. That means in their sin right at the moment, if they were to die and stand before God, they would be judged and condemned and sent to hell forever. That's what perishing means. That's real. 
and there is no third category. You're either saved or perishing, one of the two. And everyone in the world who is not in Christ is perishing. By definition, from chapter 2, they are those who smell the aroma of Christ and it strikes them as a stench. They don't see the gospel, see it with spiritual sight. They hear it intellectually for sure. They understand it intellectually for sure. They get, they get the words, but they don't see it for what it is, the good news of the glory of this beautiful Christ. And why don't they? And, and I got to say, as a, as a little side here, if, if this is you, if you're not a Christian, for sure I'm using a lot of us-them language here. Well, the Bible is written to Christians. It's written to one of those two groups, written to Christians. So this is not meant as an accusation against anybody who's not a, not a believer in Jesus. But there is some truth here that I, that I hope you can see. You have an enemy. It's not me. It's not Christians. Look here, here, there's an enemy to the person who's not a Christian here. Look, look here. Verse 4, in their case, in the case of the unbeliever, the person who's perishing, here's the enemy, the God of this world. That's Satan. Also called the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. Satan, the devil, has been given a certain bit of authority on a leash beneath God, but it is real influence and power for a time here. And what is he doing with it? Satan, it says, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, those who are perishing. Which is why it is accurate to speak of unbelievers as blind to spiritual truth, as unbelieving, as in darkness. Talking about knowledge in verse 6, it is supernatural. It's not, not natural. It's supernatural. It's perceived with the soul as well as with intellectual, natural intellectual resources. So there are a lot of reasons that people miss spiritual things, miss supernatural things, but the one that's being emphasized here explicitly and clearly is the powerful work of Satan himself. He's the enemy of human souls. Real and active, powerful and effective. His blinding is supernatural. It is deadly dangerous. It's what leads to, it leads to unbelieving in the world. He has captured all the unbelievers, it says. Veiled them. Blinded them to keep them from seeing, middle verse 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They cannot see. That's the goal of the attack, to block people from seeing everything that we were just talking about, the beauty of Christ, there's a veil. People will see Christ naturally understand something of him, will understand him perhaps as a good teacher or as, as a, an ethical man or a loving helper. But all that we are talking about, the beauty of God's saving work in Jesus, missed. And will continue to be. No matter what we do, no matter how compelling or clear or powerful we are, 
which is an important point for us to realize. There is, there is no need for us and no benefit for anyone for us to be manipulative or coercive to present things in a certain way because we can't close the sale even if we try. We human beings cannot overcome Satan. We cannot overcome this attack and this, this blinding, this enslaving from him. We, we don't have that much power. We can't. We can't overpower him. We can't change people's heart. We can't give sight to the blind. That's, that's way above us. All we are to do, and we are indeed to do this, the, the first part, we are to do it properly as, as best that we can to shine this particular light about Jesus in this particular way, the gospel of Christ, and then pray for verse 6 to happen. Pray because it is the sovereign choice of God if and or when verse 6 happens. It's not my choice. I don't declare. It's not Satan's choice for sure. And he's powerless if God decides. He's powerless compared to God. It's not even the non-believer's choice. The non-believer is blind and enslaved to Satan and cannot defeat him either. Bound up in the strong man's house, as Jesus put it in the Gospels. Captured in the snare of the devil, as Paul put it at the end of 2 Timothy 2. The only one who can successfully raid the strong man's house, the only one who can set captives free from the snare, the only one who can grant sight to the blind, who can raise the dead, is the one who in the very beginning said, let there be light. And it shone into the darkness and everything then was seen. That one the one who then again later in the prophet Isaiah predicted, you know, one day again there's going to come another light to shine into the darkness. The Messiah will come. And he is here. Christ in the gospel. Christ has come and God Almighty alone can make that light shine not just out there in the world but shine into the human heart and restore sight and give life and freedom and sight. Paul experienced it on the road to Damascus. If you're a Christian, you've experienced it too. Something's happened to you where you see and you can't, you can't even imagine not seeing anymore. You see all of life through the lens of Jesus, God come in flesh, crucified, risen, raised, the Spirit descended, and the resurrection and eternity coming. You see life in that light. And it's hard for you to imagine that people don't. Because something's happened in you. God shined light into your heart, and that's what we must pray for him to do again and again and again to our friends and our neighbors and teammates and co-workers, to shine this specific light in this specific manner. That's what we're doing, but we need him to come along beside, behind, and through us and say, and I'm going to make that work. I'm going to drive that home, cause it to penetrate and enliven He's the one who made light come in the creation and he's the one who makes light come in the recreation of the human heart. 
And when he says, let there be light, within there is. Salvation happens that leads then ultimately to transformation. That's how we came to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how anyone does. So what we see here is, ultimately, I, I can, I must. There's, there's this calling, there's this mandate. It's a privilege, but it's still it's an assignment. But I can do that open-handed and, and freely because I know that not only am I not supposed to, I actually can't make anything happen. God can and does. So I can interact with people in a way that is actually very pleasing to people. Forthright, honest, straightforward, gracious, caring about them. And I don't need an outcome. God will then follow on and do what God wants to do. I preach and I pray and I leave the results to God. That's what we're engaged in, the ministry we have by the mercy of God who shined that kind of saving light into our own hearts and is still about doing that today. He's still doing that. Still wants to use us. And I think if we get our minds around how he presents this, it, it's actually an inviting and enticing privilege. So I hope that we become a church. I hope that we further become a church that reads these chapters here, end of two, three, beginning of four, that reads these chapters and says, there's gospel ministry, there's new covenant ministry, there's what it is, there's how it is to be, and says, I want a part of that. I want to be a part of that. In our different ways, according to different giftings, yes. But that we all would say, like, I want to be a part of that. And then that would spark in us, Lord, help. A dependence on God, a Godward dependence that says, oh, we need you. We need you to change us, to show us who you are more fully, more completely, and then through us to show others. We need you for that, so Lord, help. A desire that leads first to prayer. So that's what I'm going to pray for now. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.